You're listening to the Run For Your Lives podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Daphne. And I'm Paik. And this is the Run For Your Lives podcast. I don't know what's so funny. (laughs) I don't know either. It's a good start. Good start for this. Anyway, this episode (laughs) is the American disaster film, The Towering Inferno, directed by John Guerman and released December 14th, 1974. Maybe that's Galerman. I don't know. I see two L's. I live in Texas. Everything's Spanish to me. It's all Espanol. So <laughs> I went Guillerman. I think it's Guillerman. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what it is. We'll go with that. I noticed yep. <laughs> now you didn't put a synopsis in. I didn't. <laughs> there's a building. Here's my here's my synopsis. There's a building. There's a fire. It's bad. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Do you know that that Ugh. is one of the things I actually <laughs> noted in uh, my notes, basically? One of the things I put in my notes is that Mike O'Halloran had to have this conversation with Duncan, and he just basically said, it's a fire, mister, and all fires are bad. Right. How bad can it be? All fires are bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we're all over the place and we're just starting. Oh, yeah. This one's going to be an interesting one. Um, Those who just listened to uh, 30 Days of Night earlier this season, uh, you know, a number of episodes ago, um, I was in a similar mood while watching this one where all of my notes, not all, but a lot of my notes are just like real sarcastic and jokey. Felt like my note taking was like me trying to do some kind of episode of Riff Tracks or Mystery Science Theater, but less extreme. (laughs) <laughs> I liked this movie a whole lot more. I really did actually enjoy this movie, but my, for some reason, my notes, I'm just real jokey, and I've got a lot of good ones in here. At least I think so. Oh, boy. I'll let you be the judge as you're listening, I guess. If you don't I don't know if them, I'm ready for this. Boo me. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for, for all the jokes again. I wonder how <laughs> Tony feels about this movie. Because if she likes it... Like, she likes 30 Days of Night. She might not get too excited about all your jokes. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess yeah. we'll see. At least in a lot, of, a lot of these ones, I'm not making fun of the movie. Some of them I am. But I'm, I'm laughing with it. <laughs> with it? I'm not at it. No. <laughs> Was there anything really funny that happened? Oh, yeah, there were a couple things, and I have those in my notes. Some of the moments of levity. That happened in the movie. Uh-huh. I feel like I better just get started with behind the scenes because... Let's do it. We've been all over the place in the first five minutes. So if right. that <laughs> is going to tell the tale of this podcast for this movie, I better just get this out of the way before yeah. we it's... spill. Yeah. I mean, this movie is really tense and a lot darker than I expected it to be. And like a lot heavier than I thought it was going to be. And so, yeah, I think the recording itself being a lot lighter and goofier is a great balance. (laughs) Okay. All right. That sounds good. Well, then here we are with behind the scenes. 
So it was filmed at various locations in San Francisco, California. It was produced by Irwin Allen, who was nicknamed, prior to this film, the Master of Disaster. He also had quite a hand in the directing as well. Sterling Stillifont adapted two novels, The Tower by Richard Martin Stern and The Glass Inferno by Thomas Scorcia and Frank Robinson. It was dubbed Poseidon in the Air and nominated for an Oscar in eight categories, winning in winning three of them for cinematography, film editing, and best original song for We May Never Love Like This Again. The original score was created by the master of score, John Williams. I just made that up, oh, and yeah. I think it should stick. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it totally is true. Like, he's the best. This mm-hmm. is the first joint venture by two major Hollywood studios, 20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers. At the time, things like this were just not done. Yeah. So it's cool that they did was the highest grossing film of 1974. The budget was 14 million. It grossed 116 million in the US and 203 million worldwide. It is two hours and 45 minutes, which is the longest in the series of 70s disaster films. Yeah. And Paik, since you didn't put a synopsis in, (laughs) We'll see what you can make up on the fly. Well, that's what I said. There's a big building. It's a big fire. It's big bad. (laughs) (laughs) Can they make it out? No. (laughs) We'll see. I feel like we're going to be recording this podcast about um, Thanks Killing (laughs) 3. Because that's the kind of mood you're in. I can tell already. It's going to be fun. (laughs) I think it's a synopsis fitting of the mood I'm in with this notes and stuff. We'll go with it. (laughs) All right. Okay. If you want the one I would have read, go to IMDb. (laughs) It's there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, I already read that one <laughs> when I was doing all my research and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, all right. I've got notes to get into. We've got notes to talk about, so let's oh my do goodness. it. <laughs> and as usual, <laughs> we'll start with kind of just going character by character. This one's going to be another weird because it's kind of an ensemble that jumps around all over the place. To where some of the main characters, I have little to no notes about them in particular, and just a lot of notes about what their role is in the story at that time. So I'm sure this mm-hmm. is going to be another one of those where we're just bouncing around all over the place, but we'll try to keep it halfway structured to some degree. We'll see. <laughs> we'll do what we want, Peg, because it's our podcast. Exactly. So we can bounce all <laughs> over the place if we need to. And you're right, it is an ensemble cast. It is a cast... Of some big names of that era. Oh, yeah. I that mean, was really. A- I mean, I I am not well versed in a lot of these actors because I don't watch. I have not seen a lot of movies from this era just being um, younger. Uh, so, yeah, I <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I hadn't really done that, but it was cool. I mean, it's definitely names that I recognize being a, a film fan that even if I haven't watched a lot of their movies in the grand scheme of things, like you say their name and I'm like, Oh yeah, I absolutely know who that is. They are 
legendary mm-hmm. on screen. That's the thing. Look at Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, Fred Astaire. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he got his only Oscar nomination for this film for Best Supporting Actor. Nice. And he didn't really dance very much in it. And that's yeah. what he was known for. Uh-huh. <laughs> and O.J. Simpson is also so. in this. Oops. Um, yes. <laughs> I know. Richard Chamberlain, Robert Wagner, Jennifer Jones. This was her last film. Dabney Coleman had a very bit part. Uh, Faye Dunaway, Robert Vaughn. I mean, this, yeah. And it was it was kind of popular for actors in what was considered the golden age of disaster. The 70s. To want to be in these types of movies because it was a big deal. There were a lot of big hits that came out during that time, and Irwin Allen was involved in many of them. Mm-hmm. So there's that. I think he knew how to make a good disaster film, much like we know that Taika Waititi is brilliant in doing the films that he's done. Oh, everything. Yeah. Anything he touches is. Pure Anything that he has his hand in. <sighs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, so I guess the best ways to start is kind of what you would consider the, the main character, which is the architect, Doug Roberts, played by Paul Newman. Yes. It's great. And uh, here's the first uh, little thing is because he, he comes in, he's, he's the architect. So, of course, they've got a he's got he's in a helicopter. They're flying him in to this grand opening party of the glass tower. That he was the architect, he designed, helped build, had all the plans laid out for. And of course, that was my first, and I was like, "Yeah, two like two hours and forty five minutes." Like, Man, Daphne loves the long movies. Keeps sending me towards these really <laughs> long ones. Um, no, but then I was like, "Oh, no, of course the movie's so long because we're going to spend the first twenty minutes watching this helicopter fly around." Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he really did text me, guys. He really did text me when I. We talked about doing this movie, and he went and actually looked at how long it is. He texted me and said, boy, you really like the long ones. <laughs> it's true. Movies at that time were not 87 minutes. Mm-hmm. There was a little more meat to them, I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah, they really, uh, <laughs> and it's not that it was a bad thing, but I know, you know, a, a reason that the runtime is so long is they let scenes breathe. They were like, oh yeah, they're climbing down these rail, you know, <laughs> rails. We're going to show you every second of it. We're not just going to skip to, oh, they made it down. Like, nope, you get to sit here yeah. and watch everything that they're doing play out. Which yeah, and you isn't know, necessarily a bad a thing. Of his... No. Newman did a lot of his own stunts in this film. I figured, because I, I kind of wonder about that, especially that scene that I was just talking about on the rails where they're climbing down and then he's going back up and down. And I was looking to see if there's like cuts for like a stunt man or something. But as he's climbing, I'm looking at his face. I'm like, that's Paul Newman. Like he's doing a lot of that climbing. Yeah. If not all of it. Yeah, he did it himself. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. But yeah, he did a lot of those himself. And they yeah. built a lot of the sets. They had sets. They had miniatures, all sorts of things going on in this movie. Mm-hmm. When it came to how they told the story. Yeah. I. I I tried to really like put myself just in the movie and not worry about production stuff too much. But then I do find those like the scenes of people like falling down. I'm just like, Oh, so they had like some kind of like, just 
like off, like dropped like a doll off of a model. And I was like, now, not that it looked super bad, but I'm just like, yeah, you can tell. I was like, but you know, it works. It serves what they're doing. It's like, you got to find some creative ways to shoot those things. Yeah. And they didn't have the tech that we have now, mm -hmm. which is actually probably a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Cause so, Cause we, you can, you can over CGI things. Yeah. You can over yeah. CGI something to where it's even worse. We've seen some sketchy things in yeah. some of the movies that we've covered. So I, I'm down with this. I feel like it was okay. Mm -hmm. But yeah. So I, I had a note about that scene. So I'm jump way ahead. But yeah, the him climbing up and down. Because it's like it's the fact that he goes down, then helps kind of coach Philip down, and then goes back up and gets Angela, and then goes back down with her. And then he's helping coach uh, Lisa Lett through all of it. I'm just like, man, he's so agile, just gracefully going. And then the first time when he goes down, he's like spinning and like kind of really like gracefully, like just spin climbing his way down. I was like, all right. And here's Doug doing his best Cirque du Soleil audition. Um, does he oh, get the role? <laughs> we'll see. I was like, but then Philip goes next and he was way too slow. He's never going to make it into Mystere that way. Never. Uh <laughs> oh my. But Newman gets the job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the cast of Ka, Paul Newman. Um, <laughs> uh huh. It was fun. But yeah, uh, backtracking though with Doug. Uh, so again, he's the architect, but he doesn't really want to hang around. We There's like a lot of these like little side stories that we get little things of, but then like, eh, they don't really pay off necessarily, but it's cool for, for character build. You know, we find out that Susan, I guess, they're not married, but they've been in a long relationship with each other. It seems like they've been in a long-term relationship. Yeah, and I feel like they're at a crossroads because he wants to move away, like, out in the wilderness almost, like, just away mm -hmm. from from everything. Yeah. And she has a, a chance for a big promotion at her job for a role that she's been wanting for five years. She's been working towards. And so they're trying to figure it out at the beginning. They're trying yeah. to figure out their relationship and where they're supposed to go from here. Yeah. Which even when the movie ends, we still don't know where they're going to go with that. But again, it's, it's, a, it's a little character building thing where it's just, here's the relationship of this character. It's more than like, man, woman, the end. It's like, hey, like here's we're jumping you into the lives of real people. And so I do appreciate yeah. that they set these little story, you know, background things up that are a little intriguing, but we're not going to get any answers or anything to it. But that's OK, because we're learning no. more about these characters. But it's more realistic to what yeah. people go through, mm -hmm. which we don't always get. We get, you know, just enough info to get us through. But they did give us some extra. So I'm down with that. Yeah. So the, the son-in-law of James Duncan, which is Roger Simmons, and his wife, Patty. Piece of shit. And That's yeah, all I'm So Doug say. goes to their house to confront Roger because he's just jumped directly to, oh, Roger sabotaged the whole wiring thing. That's definitely what happened. Which, I, I mean, I don't know why you would jump to that directly. Because what motive really does he have to, like, sabotage the whole building other than... It, there's like a little through line where he's like, well, you told me to, to cut corners. And then he's trying to prove a point to his father-in-law or something. I'm not. And again, we never really find out if he hundred percent did. It's always just kind of implied and he doesn't admit to it. I think he did. But, 
But again, it's it's one of those little extra flavor things. You're like, but in the end, does it really matter if he did? Nah. <laughs> well, and he took kickbacks. Like, that was one of the things that was talked about, mm-hmm. was that, you know, there were kickbacks. There were, he was able to get materials cheaper, yet they still, quote, fit the requirements yeah. because there's a building code. They still made sure that the building met code, but he was, no, he wasn't very happy when he opened one of the boxes and realized what the heck was going on, that the wiring was not what he had designed. So he did go to deal with Roger, who we meet, and he's a slime ball. He continues to be a slime ball in this entire movie. Everything he does, he's just a piece Mm -hmm. of shit. Oh, yeah. He's, just, and that's the thing, because he goes there, he's like, oh, you're just going to jump to the conclusion that this guy is sabotaging things? Like, is he really that evil? And then I was like, eh, dude, this is pretty sketchy, though. So, I'm, yeah. I'm going to go, and then, you know, Super at the sketchy. party, he's, like, hitting on Susan, and it's like, seriously, dude? And so, the I literally have one note for Susan. <laughs> and so, I jumped to that, <laughs> and it's literally just, hell yeah, Susan, shut that creep down. Hell yeah. <laughs> that's the only note I have on her. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was great. Susan was not the damsel in distress, no. not the, the quintessential one, because she seemed she pretty was willing. tough. She wanted to yeah. stay. Yeah, she wanted to stay with with him when all hell's breaking loose and the place is burning down. Yeah. She was happy to stay with Doug. She wanted to be with him. She did not want to take any opportunity yeah, she to was leave. willing to he had to force to her give to. her spot to one of the waitresses on the elevator because yes you know again jumping later but it's honestly it's actually like the last really like dug point that i have is like jumping all the way to the end because again there's a lot of just random notes that i've got so if we're going by character i get done with those pretty quick um but yeah the navy and the fire department have kind of come up with this joint plan it's quite an insane plan, but they're like basically going to tie off a line to the building to have somebody like zip line to the building across the street. But it was too far to just do it directly. So they had to like hook it up to a helicopter and then hook those lines together. It was a whole crazy scheme plan that somehow worked out lucky for them. But as they've got this plan coming up, Doug has this separate plan. He's like, well, at least I can get like 12 of these people out here. I can set this like slow gravity descent on the scenic elevator and I can get 12 people in there. So we call this plan Newman's own. And then <laughs> people can't see my face, but oh my now, God. Um, <laughs> so of course his girlfriend, Susan is included in that. And I think it was kind of like a random lottery draw. It was, they all drew numbers. The men and the women drew mm-hmm. numbers. The women would go first, and then the men would be after. Of course, the two kids yeah. were first, and then women yeah, it's like at least that. in those first twelve, he has Lisa Lett and the kids. There's a firefighter because he wants somebody there yeah. who can help them with a problem. Which, eh, I don't know. I mean, he wasn't useful at first until the end, and then it's like, well, now he's there to help O'Halloran hook everything up. So at least he's there for that. Yes. And then yeah, the mayor's wife yeah. and are, are in that original twelve. These people plus some other randos of the 300 guests that right. were at the party so that was cool That's i like i liked the character of yeah. doug in that way is he was always just kind of coming up on a roadblock and then like plan b like just twisting it like all right then i'll try something else and then it, he would he would do it 
Well, what they did is they, it's called a breeches buoy. That's what they did where they put the mm-hmm. chair across. Yeah. I wouldn't have wanted to get in that chair, Pig. I'd be terrified. Yeah. Uh, there was people who were really scared to do it. I mean, they had like a little seatbelt. It's like, oh, okay, everything's fine now. But, uh. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, and I was like looking at that. I was like, okay, they're like chair lifting people from one roof to the other. I was like, there's like 300 people up there. Give or take. And yeah. I was like, doing this one at a time from one roof to the other and bring it back. It's going to take forever to do this. Yeah. And they don't have that kind of time. Yeah. Which is then where they come up with this. So we'll just blow the water tanks. And I don't know if that plan would actually realistically work at all, but it's a great movie solution. So we'll go there. Um. (laughs) Yeah. It was clever for a movie. For a movie, I kind of wondered why someone didn't come up with the idea sooner to do that to kind of put the fire right. out. Since they weren't winning, the thing was spreading like crazy. Yeah. I guess it's kind of a last ditch because you're like, well, it's going to kill some people also by doing that, and yeah, and, and it's it going to destroy a lot of the the building itself. Which I mean, the fire also is already doing, but. Yeah. Yeah, I think anything below the fire might be okay. But those upper floors are real yeah. trashed. It's pretty bad. I don't know. If, <laughs> and it seems like Duncan's not going to have the money to rebuild this thing. <laughs> yeah, but he's also... I found it interesting that at the end of the movie, he's the ones... He's telling his daughter... He wants to make sure it never, ever happens again. So I'm like, okay, that doesn't sound like the person that we were getting to know at the beginning. No, because, you know, I'll go ahead and jump to my notes about him. Because that's, yeah, the person we see at the beginning of James Duncan is definitely, I mean, it's the grand opening of this gigantic tower. And they don't even have the safety equipment in place. The, like, the sprinklers don't work. Mm -mm. All of these little things, like, he's like, you know, he's been cutting corners. It's like, which is why the problem wasn't detected or addressed early enough. And it's like, he's already, it's because he's jumping in way too early on all of this stuff. And then once the fire starts, it's even like, of course, the owners, he doesn't even want to alert the party guests or send them because he has an early chance to no. like, well, go ahead and just send everybody out and we'll get it taken care of. And he's like, nah, we're just going to stay up here. It can't get us. Like, and then that's what ends up. He waits too long and everybody's like, Trash mm-hmm. trap up there now. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people would have survived if he had just listened in the yeah. first place. But he would not listen to Doug at all. Doug had to send um, O'Halloran up there to talk yeah. to him. Because he couldn't get through to him. I mean, he tried. Mm-hmm. But, I, but yeah. you know, he just wasn't I'm listening. I'm guessing his reasoning at first is he was like, What's well, going to hurt my reputation and, you know, stuff like that. If a, you know, fire, if people know that there was a small fire and then we made a big deal out of it. But it's like, but if you don't make a deal out of it and then a bunch of people die, I think it's going to hurt your reputation a little more than, than, oh, hey, I was trying to protect you in case something happened. Well, he didn't think the fire was going to get up there. And that reminded me of Titanic. Uh-huh. Like. Everyone thought it was unsinkable. So a lot of people didn't panic until it was too late. Yeah. 
And it's the same thing here. Yeah. A lot of people didn't, you know, he didn't take it seriously. And he basically was forced by O'Halloran to tell folks what was going on and that they were moving the party. But it did cause a panic. Yeah, and then people are real dumb in panic situations. The note that I have is like, Duncan says, don't get in this elevator (laughs) or there's a decent chance that it will lead you to certain doom. And then the door of the elevator opens and a whole bunch of dummies just run in going, yay, doom. Like, (laughs) Yeah. So, well, that that didn't work out well. And and it does, as it was, you know, warned about, the elevator malfunctions, takes them directly to the floor of the fire, boom, roasted. So... (laughs) They were crispy. Mm-hmm. They were real crispy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Super crispy. It's like, ah, you got the wrong idea. You know, whenever you have a roast at a party, that's where you make fun of people. Not, you You, you had the wrong idea, Duncan. <laughs> oh. Uh, <laughs> wrong kind of roast. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm just kind of jumping around characters a lot. I don't even, I'm not even checking in with you. Like, did you have any more on that character? I'm good. So... I'll pump the brakes a little bit. Back, backtrack. So do you have more on Doug that you want to talk about before? Um, um, I love that he told Duncan that he was going to burn his black tie after the party just to show him that he's really getting the hell out of town. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt bad for his him because his buddy, Will Giddings, who was trying to help him figure things out, ended up dying because the fire. Mm-hmm. And he tried to stop someone from opening a door. Yeah. So the fire would, like, jump out. So he was trying to save this other guy, which he did do. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, Will Giddings. Yeah, if you would have just... R.I.P. Will (laughs) Will Giddings. Yeah, if you would have just left that door closed, the fire would have just stayed in its room all night and not bothered Mm -hmm. anybody. No. (laughs) Well, I wondered about that because there's one of my things I'm kind of making fun of. I was like, even in this room, (laughs) it's this storage room full of chemicals and stuff. And the entire day has gone by and the fire had spread like halfway through that room. I was like, this is the slowest spreading fire known to mankind. Uh, (laughs) Like, because we just keep checking back in on it throughout the entire day. And it's like, oh, it made it to the next shelf. (laughs) Like, it started real slow. I mean, finally, it definitely stopped. It decided to stop lollygagging and it picked up the pace a little bit and spread quicker. But for like the first like 12 hours or whatever, it probably wasn't that long, but like first six hours, it was just like, oh, we're just slowly going to move across this room until somebody opens the door. And then I'm, I'm blasting out of here. We're going because that's whenever the fire department shows up and Cappy goes, smoke so thick, we don't know how far it spread. And I was like, yeah, given how fast we've seen it spread so far, it might have made it halfway across the hall of the other wall by now. <laughs> across from the door. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no. Once once the fire was not grounded in its room anymore, it it threw a real big fit, and it was blowing things up and blowing out walls. And it hated stairways. Man, that fire had a vendetta against stairways. Did not like them. He's like, people using the stairs not in my house. I'm blowing up every stairway. <laughs> but I'll wait till they get past the point first, and then I'll. <laughs> so they can't come back down. <laughs> and I'm knocking over this thing of cement because fuck it. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know how the cement got spilled. That had to have been like way earlier in the day. That was like a that that was like a thing unfire related where like while building this stuff, yeah. 
<laughs> where somebody's just like maybe some dis some disgruntled employee just yeah. said, here. What do I do with that. this wheelbarrow full of cement? I don't know. Take it up the stairs to the top room and then just leave it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they kicked it on the way out and it fell over. I don't know. <laughs> oh, Doug. Again, anything else? I don't know. I have one left right. on Doug. And it basically was when he called, when Doug was talking to Duncan about Will Giddings and Duncan was basically like, oh, he'll be taken care of. Don't worry, he'll be taken care of. In just this, like, dismissive way. And it was another indication that Duncan just was not listening to Doug when it came to what was really happening. Yeah. I mean, at one point, he told Doug to get up there in his tuxedo and ha and enjoy the party. While a fire is raging downstairs. Right. Like the Again, most... I think he was oblivious. I think he thought, oh, it can't be that bad. This building's not going to burn down. Right. Like, the most concern he took about it was with his son-in-law, where he's like, Doug thinks you did this thing. He thinks you said, did you mess with the wiring? Yes. Because I wanted to. Okay. Well, I don't care anymore. <laughs> like... <laughs> I honestly, I think Duncan had people, he had to cut corners oh yeah he asked people to do certain things i'm not sure he was fully aware of exactly what they did but i think the thing with roger he was starting to realize it's like okay all right mm -hmm. i my decisions have you know this is a result of my decision to not follow the plans and mm -hmm. to try to save money by getting other people to take care of portions of it yeah. Uh, so I don't know corners. what else. I mean, beyond Roger, I don't know who else he talked to or who else he worked with. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure there were a lot of other corners that were shaved off. Oh, yeah. There was like, I think Doug mentioned something about like certain exits in stairways and stuff that weren't open. And the sprinkler yeah. system the wasn't hooked up. didn't work. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that. I mean, he wanted them to wait, but they just didn't. I mean, yeah. Duncan wanted to have this big extravaganza. Well, he got it. It didn't end well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, uh, they definitely were burning that place up with that party. Uh, <laughs> Disco Inferno. Yeah. Oh, wait, this is before Disco took off. <laughs> this was the start of it. They didn't start the fire. Because it's always burning <laughs> since the world's been turning, you know? But <laughs> the other, I guess, kind of main character with name recognition behind it, Steve McQueen, as Michael O'Halloran, the fire chief. Uh, I liked him a lot. I don't have really any notes about him necessarily. Most of my notes are more about just like the plans and the fire department and like what they were attempting but I liked his character. Um, I had a quote from him that I just, <laughs> I don't know if I love necessarily as far as like as the character, but it was fun. But when they're trying to get through the elevator kind of sha uh, shaft area to get out and back to the rest of their team. And one of the fire, after they watch a burning body of one of their team members just falling down the shaft and then they got to climb down. And one of the firemen goes, I can't, I'll fall. I know I'll fall. And he just responds to him. Okay. Then you should go first, so when you fall, you don't take any of us with you. And I was like, damn, McQueen with the savagery. Just <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
that that was a that was a bit intense. <laughs> um, I don't know if it was meant to be funny, but it kind of was funny. Somehow it inspired yeah. the guy to do it. I don't know how that's very inspirational. Yeah, but it worked. Yeah, <laughs> it wouldn't have inspired me. <laughs> I actually do have some notes on on our fire chief. All right. Okay, so. There were times, like, when he took the chopper up to hook onto the scenic elevator and get Mm -hmm. it brought down to the ground, that I just figured out that he was one of those, if you want it done right, you better do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I like that about him. Uh, Because that was his plan. Yeah. Very creative kind of thing. He thought on his toes really quickly. And was like, this is what we've got to do. And I'm just, we're going to hook up. An entire elevator full of people to a helicopter and then lower them to the ground. Sounds insane. I'm in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I also feel like he was always dealing. I mean, not that everyone around him was incompetent, but I think the civilian population <laughs> was kind of incompetent at yeah. times. And he felt like he was dealing with idiots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like... um when Duncan wouldn't listen to Doug and he has to go up there to knock sense into him. And then when Harry doesn't understand why Mike needs a list of the business ten- tenants. So then he has to go on and explain, well, if there's these textiles, there's going to be, you know, this gas, poisonous gas and different things that are going to be given if the item burns, that's going to be in the air and that can kill people. Yeah. So, He's having to, like, do all these things, explain to people. Instead of people just responding and giving him what he needs, he's having to stop and explain it. And I think he did not enjoy that. I think that was, like, (laughs) ridiculous. He did have one really good quote that I saved, which was the one at the very end where he says, You know, we were lucky tonight. Body counts less than 200. And I'm thinking, there were 300 people at the party. And I don't know how many other people were even in the building. That's like two, like two thirds <laughs> of the people died. You, you see, you think that's lucky? Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, and then he went on to say, you know, one of these days you're going to kill ten thousand in one of these fire traps, and I'm going to keep eating smoke and bringing out bodies until somebody asks us how to build them. And I thought he probably had just had had enough long before then. And uh-huh. I'm glad he finally, you know, just put it out there for all to see because, honestly, it had to be annoying. Yeah. Like, he's going in to save the people who won't save themselves. Mm-hmm. They won't come downstairs, so I'm going to have to go deal with that. You know, I'm going to have to risk my life to save these people who won't yeah. listen or do what they should do when there's a fire. How, how, mu- how many times do you have to explain... That the fire is bad and you need to get out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I felt for him. I really did. But I did feel like he was dealing, he felt he was dealing with people that just were so clueless. And he just had to keep doing things. And when he got up and had to go and and do hook onto the scenic elevator, and even when he had to plant the explosives, you know, he's talking about, well, some idiot's going to go up there and do it. Of course it's going to be him. Yeah. He can't trust anyone else to do it. Right. So he had to go do it himself. Yeah. And then with that elevator scene, because I got it. And then the other firefighter just is starting to fall. 
So the whole way down, he's got to like hold this guy. He's just hanging by the chief, hanging onto his hands. And then when he finally drops him, they're close enough to the ground. He lands on the like inflatable mat thing. But O'Halloran's like reaction on his face, I loved so much. It was it was funny to me because he was like, "Oh no, oh wait, never mind. He's good. We're good. We're fine. Never mind. Moving okay, on." Yeah. Like, <laughs> it was like yeah. panic into like, "Oh no, okay, we're good." Like he almost like 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 uh, trying to describe it without just the visual. You can see what I'm doing. But like brushes it off. Like yes. he does the whole thing. Like pushes his hand. Where he's just like, "That was stupid. Why did I even freak out about that?" He was like, "We're done with that. Okay." Thank God we're done. Again, um, I feel like I want to see him just get up to a podium and start ranting about all the ridiculousness <laughs> that he has to deal with. The people who won't listen mm-hmm. and the incompetence and people not not understanding how to make a building safe and like the fire code and this and that. Because it was ridiculous. Yeah. The things that he had to do. And, and, and just do it. But and he he's- also... <laughs> Go ahead. He he was also the he also had some of the comic relief in this. Like I feel like there were a few things that happened um that he was involved with. One of them was and I actually had moments of levity in my notes like I wrote some of these things down. So like when the Navy Air Rescue they actually arrive and they want to set up shop next to the command center which is I think on floor 79. Yeah. They say they're just going to trot up the stairs. And he's just like, you'll just trot up to 79, huh? And then Flaker responds with standing by in the lobby, meaning they're not going to just trot up to 79. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought that was kind of funny. And then um, he wonders why their suit is so heavy and why they couldn't design a survival suit for them like they did for football players. And Happy, who's one of the people, one of his uh, peeps, says, who pays to see us play? Mm-hmm. Meaning no one's going to see it, so it's not on the top of mind. So I thought it was kind of funny. So. Yeah. Um, his character, yeah. very similar to Doug in the way that something was going to go wrong. And then he's very quick on his feet to change the plan and mm-hmm. figure something else out. So both of them have that in common. And it's. He's going back and forth on plans like, okay, we're going to have to hook up the zip line thing. And then it was like, well, it doesn't go that far. Well, then we'll hook it up to a helicopter and figure it out from there. Yep. And so they start going with that. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, well, the wind is actually dying down. So you know what? Maybe let's try a roof landing. They forgot a very oh important They forgot a very important step in that process, which is you're supposed to land on the building, not into it. But, you know. Uh, I don't understand <laughs> what was going on there. And the woman <laughs> running because... Damsel in distress. Oh my God, I'm terrified. Running out to try to get to the helicopter before it even lands. Right. Which distracts them and causes them to crash. And I'm just like. Was, was that it? Or was it like, that Susan? like the wind picked back up and like blew them into the building? I'm not sure. I don't know. I think they got distracted by the two women that ran out there. <laughs> and I And again, I was just thinking, why can't they all be like Susan? She's not running around in, in a hurry to get somewhere. I'm trying to think of all She's, the know, women just, I've seen in the world, if there's any beautiful enough to distract me enough to crash a helicopter. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm gonna, I know a few I could name and mm. that would, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. you probably could. <laughs> I could. <laughs> yeah, I know you well enough. I know, I know who they are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, uh, let's see what else on that. With the that that plan, luckily they had plenty of stuff to tie the ropes to inside the promenade room. There's plenty oh, yeah. of statues and gates and fences and bars and everything to tie all that to. All sorts of things. That yeah. room was really cool. I'd love to have a party in there. When, you know, the fire would not be invited. I would make sure of that. But then I'd love to. I mean, because it was cool. There's like this like, I don't know if it was real grass or if it was just kind of like a turf. But like it like had this like outdoor park promenade like thing to it while it was still indoors. Yeah. It was beautiful. And it kind of made me sad once they had to knock out the windows and they were like just tossing and trashing the place and moving all the chairs and everything. I'm like, oh, that room was so perfectly decorated. And now it's just ruined. <laughs> well, you know, it was called the promenade room. Mm-hmm. You meant you just mentioned that it was like a promenade. Well, yeah. it is. It, that's what it was called. Yeah, it was. But it just it say like the whole like outdoor yeah. park setting inside a building. I was like, that is yeah, that is really cool. And it breaks it's very it, fancy. It broke some of the rules because I have a little thing in other notes. I said, fun fact: all carpets were mustard yellow or dark orange in the seventies. By law, you had the death penalty if you didn't have a yellow or orange carpet. So, uh, <laughs> and usually it was shaggy, right? Like very shaggy carpet too. But up here, no, it was yeah. like a nice tile, and then like the grass and the green. And I was like, I guess if you have that power, you can break the yellow or orange carpet law in the seventies. <laughs> you know, when I was buying my house, I looked at a couple of other houses, and one house was so cool. Like the downstairs was all modern. But then you got to the upstairs and two of the bedrooms had one had blue and one had orange shag carpet. Like, I was just like, how can this happen? This whole house looks like, you know, it's got all new appliances. Everything's gorgeous. And you come up here and you see this. And then you just. You it just s- didn't fit to me. Yeah. You walk upstairs, you go groovy all of a sudden. What's going on? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> it was real groovy. <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, those are all my notes. Yeah, yeah notes that's about all him. I had on him. Other than, yeah, just the idea. It wasn't his idea to blow the water tanks, but then he was the one who's like, it's going to end up having to me, you know, be me that does it. I'm the only, like, I'm going to be the one yep. that's going to get this done the right way. Yeah, do like, it right. Do it yourself. Mm-hmm. That's so, what yeah. has to happen. So, uh, the next character on our list, Susan, which I already said I had one note and I read it. <laughs> but you if know you've what? got I some really more on her. I really don't have any notes on her. No, I don't. Mm-hmm. And then I've kind of covered yeah, my Duncan stuff known. as well. So, let me make sure. Let yeah. me see. Oh, I did have a Duncan note. I think Carlos should have stayed tied to the wine rack because he ended up dying by oh, statue no. instead. He should have taken his chances with the wine. I know. I was he really. He might have had an opportunity to live. I liked sad him. about he that. I would know, Carlos. He helped. <laughs> Damn you! Uh. <laughs> he helped everybody. Like, mm-hmm. he was willing to step in. He answered questions. He was answering the phone. He was doing whatever he had to do and pouring a great drink for people. He made, like, ice cream Sunday milkshake things for the kids. I was like, get you a bartender that can do did. that, man. Oh. <laughs> yes. Always. And then he died by statue, and that just wasn't fair. No. I was I didn't very like it. I did sad. I did cheer very loudly when Duncan punched Roger in the stomach. Yeah. I was very pleased. That I'm was like, great. You know what? 
He's like, we're getting out of here. And he just wonderful punched him. And he was just like, oh, by the way, me and you were the last ones to get out of here. How about that? Ones to get out. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. uh, Yeah. There were two deaths that really bothered me because I have some notes about other characters. So it's a lot of just random. I'll just talk about other characters. But the two that actually like the one is, yeah, Carlos. I was like, damn you. Uh, And then. And then the mayor just like, I know where fell going. in a hole. I don't know what that was about, but um, yes, it like I don't, I that don't was a weird. It's like he untied himself and like walked to the hole and was like, "Bye." But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he ever really tied himself very well, right? I but don't no, think he did. The other one, of course, and I think yeah, you said you think you know is Lisa Lett. Um, Lisa Lett. Oh my gosh, that makes me sad every time I watch this movie. Like it was, it was really rough because. I, I didn't expect it. That was kind of the big thing. Because um, I was like, fuck. Like, literally, while watching it, I just went, fuck. It was like, <laughs> no. it, you know, they're going down the elevator. And then I was like, of course, there's going to be like this explosion that knocks the elevator off track. And then they're going to save it. But I didn't expect her to just like tumble out and fall. fall out. Yeah. And it was like horrible. Like, <laughs> it's just terrifying. Yeah. I'm like, I, it actually made me she- mad because I was like, yeah. I liked her, and you did not have to do that to me. Why would you do this? <laughs> and then I just immediately th- think of Harley, Fred Astaire's character. And I'm like, he just said, I'll meet you in the lobby when I get down. <laughs> no, it was just, it was, I'm like, damn it. Why would you do this, Towering Inferno? And he, Why? It's so funny, though, because he did just explain to her. He tried to tell her who he was and, how, you know, that he was a con man, and she didn't mm-hmm. even care. She's yeah. like, I know you don't have any money. There's no villa. There's none of this. <laughs> he, yeah, they had this cute relationship. And I thought, oh, she loves him anyway. Or not love, maybe not love, but she likes him. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was great. And she had done such a good thing, like running down to save the kids. Like she knew well, they're not going to be able to hear anything. So she was down there banging on the door, trying to wake up the kids so that they could get out because they're apartment was burning and oh yeah she went purposely because i guess she was like a nanny slash teacher I think she was like an art teacher Te- yeah she, that's what they're doing art they, yeah and so yeah she was like teaching so like she knew the kids so which is another really cool thing was like mrs albright we don't get her a lot but i was like it kind of took me off guard i was like this was made in the 70s i don't think this was a very normal thing to have like non-hearing representation with asl no in a movie in this time period. And I was like, that had to have been a rarity. And I'm, I really love that. That's cool that they had that yeah. in there. But with that, of it course. It stands out. Yeah. That's, so Lisa Lett makes that decision to go down because she knows, like, even if there all is all the alarms and alerts and stuff, she can't hear that. She doesn't know. No, so she, she has can. to go make sure that they're okay on her own. Which is good because then Jarnigan catches it on the cameras and then sends Doug to go kind of help them out. And yeah, that was really cool. Uh, so I like that. And then even the kids were great. Uh, Philip with those headphones. I was like, is he listening to music or about to pilot an <laughs> alien spacecraft? One or the other. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> they were very common and very popular <laughs> in the 70s, those then, headphones. Yeah. And then I, I was like, I can understand the, the mother not hearing everything because she's deaf. But, like, Philip has even, like, had no idea what was going on. It's like, of course, he still has his headphones on. He's lying there like, damn, this new Kendrick Lamar shit is straight fire. 
Oh, damn, the actual fire blazing in my apartment right now is actual straight fire. Ah! Like... Oh, my God. <laughs> well, his his little sister was terrified and in a closet. Yeah, I don't... I don't know if you can hide from fire in a closet. Not for long. I don't think you can. Um, no. But it's good that... No, you know you can yeah. hide from Michael Myers in a closet. Mm-hmm. Can't hide from him anywhere, so fire is much worse, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably not. But yeah, um, let's see what other character stuff I said again, like O.J. Simpson. Um, I liked Jernigan. I liked the character. Uh, shame it's O.J. Simpson, but... Uh, if, yeah. I, if I if I take that out of the equation, it's like I like the character. Um, he's very on top of things. He's great. At, like, I guess he was like the head security, like like the security official, because like he seemed yeah. to be the one that's like ordering everybody around and keeping them in line. Like, okay, you're doing this, you're doing this. We're making this happen. We're doing, and I did like that. And we get the uh, the secret lovers. I don't really know who they were. Lori uh, and Dan Bigelow. Mm-hmm. He had something to do. With Duncan, he was like one of his henchmen, I think, and she yeah. was his secretary, which was a very common trope at that time. Yeah, that men in offices were having affairs with their secretaries. Oh, I watch Mad Men. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it. Uh, no, but yeah. So yeah, R.I.P. To, I just called the secret lovers. I didn't even go in to like get their names, but yeah, he said Dan and Lori. <laughs> um, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was kind of a sweet. He's like, you know, we're gonna make it out of this, and I didn't know what to expect. And then he's like. I, you know, ran really fast in track and he throws the, the wet blanket over him and then immediately catches on fire and goes out the window. Or <laughs> no, he just like falls. But I was like, yeah, that didn't work. And then. No. I was like, well, maybe she's going to make it out. And then she catches on fire and falls out the window. And you're like, or not. Ugh. Okay, then. Well, they tried and then didn't like the <laughs> firefighters like bust into their apartment like right after she fell out. And I was like, of course, timing. Yeah. Um. <laughs> And I just wondered why, you know, they should have tried to get out when they noticed it was burning. Instead, yeah. they just kind of hung out there. And I'm like, you would have had a better chance if you just got ready. And she yeah. wasn't wearing anything but a shirt. Right. And so what was it that he like, happened? He like turned off like their phone. So yeah. they couldn't be bothered. And then he couldn't turn yes. it back on. So he's like, well, now nobody knows we're here. Great. <laughs> I fucked both well, of us. Well, and what is... Um. <laughs> I just didn't understand all of these offices that had these bedroom suites at the back. Right. That was just odd to me. Like, I... And it was in a couple of the rooms. Like, I mean, Doug hey, had some, one because... Sometimes while you're at work, you need to get busy in a different way. Oh, Okay. I don't know. (laughs) I don't think that would exist in today's world. Back then, maybe it was a common thing. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'd never. I never worked in an office building in the 70s, so I couldn't say. No. Uh. No. Neither did I. Neither did I. (laughs) Yeah, uh, just a little note with the mayor. I was like, when a ribbon cutting for a building doesn't work well, is that a bad omen? It took him a while to get that ribbon cut. And I was like, should that be a sign? Like, you know what? We'll do this later. Uh (laughs) Dan was so proud of those scissors, but they didn't work very well. No, no, they didn't. They were not sharp enough to cut that ribbon. Mm -mm. Um, Roger, of course, talking more about him. Uh, Just not only is he just a terrible person, but also 
an idiot. Just dumbass. Like, hey, Roger, there's no way down that stairwell. Got it. I'm going down the stairwell then. But I just, okay, fine. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't listen. He doesn't listen. He's not going to listen to them. Yeah. He's not going to listen. And so my next note on him, I just said, I don't think I was supposed to laugh at Roger falling to his death in the chairlift thing, but I did. Uh, (laughs) That dude's like straight up kicking guys off of it into like, I'm like, what the hell? His buddies, two of them were people that he had been talking with about, we need to take control of the chair. Mm -hmm. And the other one was the senator who was trying to get him off the chair. Yeah. And pulled back into the building and ended up dying because... The chair took off and Roger kicked everybody off the chair because he's a selfish jerk. Mm hmm. Because, yeah. Uh, so, next after characters, because I think so. Yeah, then I have a little section on the fire itself, which I think I talked about a lot of that already. But um, there was one little thing, uh, wasn't with the fire department, is because like, it shows them like coming from like down the streets and turning streets. Wasn't there a fire department right across the street from the building, from the tower? I think. Potentially. Uh, because I remember noticing it at the beginning of the movie when Harley Claiborne shows up and he's looking up at the tower. There's a fire department across the street behind him. Because I remember seeing that and going, oh, good. At least they have a fire department directly across the street. That'll make it easy. And then when they called the fire department, these guys load up and drive like halfway across town. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> It takes more than one fire department to handle a fire of this size, although a fire in a little room doesn't warrant that many fire trucks. Yeah, the first people that should have been sent were the people across the street. (laughs) Yes. They might have been able to get it under control. Mm -hmm. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah, that is, yep, that's all the notes I have on that. All right. Well, on that. Well, I had one other moment of levity I wanted to bring up, and it was basically, um, so the firemen are talking while they're heading to the fire all the way from across town. The younger fireman is asking about fighting a fire in a high rise. And the older fireman says it's like being inside a chimney. Well, the younger fireman was actually played by Scott Newman, which is Paul Newman's son. It was the only time I think they starred in the same movie. That is cool. So I have a couple. Yeah, I have a couple of notes about. About this movie as a whole. Um, I think I mentioned earlier, it was one of the movies that was released during the 70s, which was the golden age of disaster films. We saw movies like Airport, Poseidon Adventure, Earthquake, and The Towering Inferno, followed by The Hindenburg, The Swarm, When Time Ran Out, as well as sequels to Airport and The Poseidon Adventure. It was also a huge influx of disaster films on television as well. There was a revival in the 90s uh, with Dante's Peak, Deep Impact, Armageddon, Independence Day, Volcano, Daylight, and Twister, some of which have been covered on this podcast already. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of like the second coming of the disaster movie. I really appreciated as a whole the interactive dialogue between Doug and Mike. It was pretty dynamic. And that we got to see a lot of these perilous situations that didn't always end well. Yeah. And those are pretty much 
all that I have. Yeah. For notes, we've covered. Yeah, we've we've covered everything that I had. Yeah. The only other notes I had are little things. I said it was 138 floors. Um, office space on the bottom half, and then the top half were residential apartments. I'm not sure. I've never lived in that big of a city. I don't know how uh, normal that is. Probably a lot more than I would think that you kind of have residential on top mm-hmm. and offices and stuff. So that's interesting. But I was like, yeah, that is, that's actually really cool. Be interesting to live in a building where there's also all of this office space, people coming in and out working all the time. But they, yeah, cause they, uh, yeah, you we see a- at the beginning, someone is, you know, showing some people around who are looking for an apartment and it's like, we're not going to live on the same floor as like office buildings. And it's like, no, it's like, that would be a nightmare. Like, <laughs> <laughs> of course I would. Oh my gosh, especially for you, Peg. You don't like to get no, up in the morning. And you know those offices would open early and all that noise like would not Six be and seven AM. Yeah. I was like, mm, <laughs> no. Leave me alone. <laughs> Work later. Uh yeah, and then the only other note I have is just kind of at the beginning after the uh four hour helicopter montage was it had a <laughs> dedication to firefighters and I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And that was your the last of your notes? That was it. Oh, my goodness. Wow. We've made it through this movie, the actual discussion of the we movie did. and the characters. I wasn't sure if we would when we started. <laughs> <laughs> of course, even though we're done with that, I know that you have a, quite a few awesome production notes and tidbits you like to bring And I'm always excited to see what kind of fun stuff that you've dug up, found out about these movies. Okay, well, I do have a bunch of production notes, uh, so I might as well kick it off. Film producer and director Erwin Allen is no stranger to disaster films. He produced The Poseidon Adventure and directed and produced The Swarm and Beyond The Poseidon Adventure, which I have seen both of those. And they may or may not be on our list already. The Towering Inferno had four departments that worked seamlessly on their components to tell the story, with Academy Award-winning cinematographer Bill Abbott in charge of the special effects. Though Abbott had tried to retire a bunch of times, Irwin Allen would not hear of it and kept dragging him back into projects, so they worked together quite a few Mm -hmm. times on films like this. Sterling Siliphant, who also wrote The Poseidon Adventure, won an Oscar for his screenplay for In the Heat of the Night, which was a late 60s movie, I believe. Though he did not win an Oscar, John Williams did win a BAFTA for his original score. In fact, they gave him the award for two films in that year. The Towering Inferno was one of them. And what was the other, Pake? 74 would have been Star Wars. Mm Mm-mm. Empire, wait... Oh, Jaws, Jaws, duh. (laughs) (laughs) Additionally, Fred Astaire, who played Harley Claiborne, won a BAFTA and a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor, even though he was known for just being this big star in musicals and danced a lot in those musicals as well. John Guillermin went on to direct King Kong in 1976 and King Kong Lives in 1986, as well as Death on the Nile, which is, was based on an Agatha Christie book. 
The external shots of the building were at 555 California Street, San Francisco. It looks familiar because it also served as Daniel Riddick's headquarters in San Andreas and was also seen in the movie Dirty Harry and a bunch of other movies beyond that. Erwin Allen convinced Warner Brothers and 20th Century Fox to collaborate on the project after each had bought the rights to one of the books. Warner Brothers bought The Tower, while Fox bought The Glass Inferno. He didn't want the films to cannibalize each other and, you know, think Deep Impact versus Armageddon or Volcano versus Dante's Peak. The film was made at Fox, but the costs were split equally between the two studios. Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, and William Holden all wanted top billing. They ultimately chose to go with dual top billing with McQueen and Newman, Holden, though a long-term box office draw, was declining in popularity, was not as popular as the other two. They were very careful in the trailers and the cast list at the end of the movie to showcase Newman and McQueen equally. Each received $1 million and 10% of the box office for their role in the film. McQueen created a little rivalry between himself and Newman. McQueen's camp was very upset to learn that Newman originally had 12 more lines of dialogue than he did. In the end, they had the same amount of dialogue, but since McQueen didn't appear in the film till 43 minutes in, Newman had used almost half his lines at that point. Newman regretted his decision to co-star with McQueen because of this McQueen created rivalry and vowed not to do something like this again. However, Newman did start in another Irwin Allen production when time ran out um, in 1980, and it also co-starred William Holden. Newman did his own stunts for the most part. McQueen insisted on doing the leaping off the helicopter onto the building stunt. After seeing the towering inferno, Roderick Thorpe had a dream that very same night about a man being chased through a skyscraper by gun-wielding assailants, which became the inspiration for Nothing Lasts Forever, which was the inspiration for the film Die Hard. The best Christmas movie, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Of the 57 sets created for the film, only eight (laughs) remained standing when filming ended. They used 1,000 real firefighters throughout the entire production. And the cast would often come in on their days off just to watch the other scenes and the work that was going on in the movie because they were that interested what was happening. And that is Production Notes, the Towering Inferno edition. All right. (laughs) I think we covered it pretty well. I think we did a good job. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, boy. Well, at this point, the feedback phone. we know what this means. You know what this means. It's the feedback phone. Yeah. What do people have to say? Go ahead and answer it. All right. We've got some feedback this week for the Towering Inferno. Uh, a lot of feedback to read. A lot of it from one person. Not a knock, though, because we are really happy to have somebody write in. And give us their thoughts on movies, any and all thoughts, of course. So I'm excited to get into that one. But first, we get another one. So 
let's go ahead and get right into it because we got a lot of fun thoughts to get to. <laughs> we definitely do. So Tony shared with us on Twitter, my love for disaster movies started with this one and the Poseidon Adventure. Yes, kind of for me too. And Tony, I think the Poseidon Adventure will be coming, if not this season, next season. It's going to come. We have to do it because it's too, it's too integral to the disaster film genre. We have to do it. And I don't think Peg's seen it. I have not. There's a lot of right. classic movies I have not seen. <laughs> I know, but I feel like we're chipping away at that on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Getting you exposed to those movies. All right. This next one, she, she should have just been our guest host on this episode, but that's okay. I think so, too. I'd love to have she those thoughts. She had a lot to share. <laughs> yes, because this comes from listener Shenandoah, and she sent uh, a lot of this on Facebook through Messenger. She's been waiting for us to cover this movie pretty, like, you know, a lot earlier on, we had, you know, re talked on Facebook. She had reached out and we knew that this was one of her favorites and she was looking forward yes. to it. So we made sure to tell her we're covering it. Give us anything and everything you got. And boy, absolutely she deliver. She definitely did. She's got yeah. so many thoughts. So why don't you mm -hmm. let us know what she thought, Pig? Go. She says, The Towering Inferno is one of my favorite movies and definitely my favorite action movie. I have to go by genre because we'll be here all night otherwise. It's been so long ago that I first saw it. I don't remember the circumstances I came to find this movie. Anyway, what a cast. Not only the big stars of the day, Newman and McQueen, but many popular stars of the time, Faye Dunway, Richard Wagner, Richard Chamberlain, and some that even today's first-time viewers would recognize. Okay, maybe only the name. O.J. Simpson, Fred Astaire, and Mike Lookinland, Bobby Brady. Right off, I love the set and wardrobe. So stylish and fancy. The music isn't my thing personally, but Lori's hair, Patty's dress... Heart eyes emoji. And of course, Paul Newman. What a treat for the eyes. Hit the wrong button. Okay. <laughs> Cut that out. And Paul Newman. What a treat for the eyes. I rewatched it all last night, trying to pull out the most exceptional parts, but honestly, it's all exceptional. The first big thing I noticed was Doug Roberts' helicopter flight into San Diego. What scenery. It's breathtaking. That chopper got so low to the water at one point, it made me wonder if the pilot was showing off. Probably not. I know nothing about helicopters. And the tower lit up with lights, not flames. Was beautiful. <laughs> Did you notice the way Jim talked about the tower? It reminded me of the Titanic. Not even God could sink this ship. I know this film sparked, no pun intended, or maybe so, a lot of safety measures, <laughs> measures in building codes. <laughs> Things were starting to get serious, just like after Titanic, people started to be more concerned about their own lives rather than how fancy the thing was. I worked for five years in a fire marshal's office and have seen how seriously code is taken now. And sadly, in West Virginia, as many places in the U.S., I imagine it's tossed to the side as optional. Another thing I loved about this movie is the way they put many people in positions they likely hadn't been able or permitted to hold pre-70s. Jernigan, the African-American security officer, was taken seriously and held a respected position. The deaf woman, Mrs. Albright, as a capable and involved parent, not coddled or helpless as, as not coddled as helpless or insignificant. And although many women are referred as Mrs. Husband's name, Doug's girlfriend Susan had a personality and once of her own, a well-developed character as well as Lisa Lett. I love the way these women were not dumbed down but shown to be brave and intelligent. I think my favorite scene is between Bigelow and Lori. So terribly sad. I cheered Roger getting what he deserved, and I always cry when Harley receives the cat elk and news Lizalette didn't make it. Or Elky. Oh, yeah. It was Elky. Yeah. I seriously could talk about this movie more, but I'm excited to hear what everyone else thought about this classic movie. Thanks for letting me fly my nerd flag here. Oh, and did you know Paul Newman's son Scott was in the movie? 
He's the young firefighter that is afraid to rappel down the elevator shaft. He and Paul don't share speaking roles, but at the end of the movie, Paul and Faye are sitting on the steps and Scott walks by helping to carry a victim on a stretcher. I know that was a really long review. Feel free to use any part of it. I can't help but gush over this movie. Well, we used all of it and we loved every second of it. Thank yes. you so much, Shenandoah. Right in again. Tell us what other Please movies. Do. I mean, you said, yeah. What other movies do you love? We'll, we'll cover them and look forward to hearing yeah. your thoughts because that was awesome. That was awesome. We'd love to have your thoughts on other movies. So I can't remember what other movie she suggested, but I feel like there were a couple. So I'm going to go back in the messages and see what other ones there are. She may have suggested The Poseidon Adventure as well, which I've already mentioned is something we're going to cover at some point. Yeah. Either this season or next. So definitely. Thanks for that. We also heard Mm -hmm. from Howard Bannister, who said, incredible special effects for its time. Irwin Allen really rocked those big budget all-star suspense films that he did. He knew what he was doing. That's why he still looked up to as being such a trailblazer for this genre. If you would like to be like Shenandoah, Howard Bannister, or Tony... Or if you've noticed, we don't have any live steving this week. If you'd like to submit your feedback, you can go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash run for your lives podcast. You can email us at run for your lives podcast at gmail.com. You can tweet at us on Twitter at RFYL podcast. We're also on Instagram at run for your lives podcast. And if you're enjoying the show, tell your friends. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and pretty much all other podcast players, including YouTube and Facebook, because Facebook has added a podcast option. So if you're on your phone looking yeah. at Facebook, our episodes are available there for you to listen to. Yeah, which is really cool. I like that addition. Yeah, me too. Uh, I read an article about the analytics. They're trying to work out some of the bugs in the analytics, like for how many people are actually listening, because it's separate from whatever podcasting platform you post it to. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm interested in how that works. Yeah. You can go to runforyourlivespodcast.com for all the links that you'll ever need. And please give us a review on Apple Podcasts, as that's the best way to share the love and get us out there even more. We really appreciate it. Absolutely do. And talking about sharing some love, I will go ahead and talk about what's going on in the podcast universe around us. Some of our other podcast friends, podcasts and things like that. My other podcast, Strange Indeed. Right now we're having a good time over there. We are pulling double duty, two episodes a week (laughs) as me, Rima and Jason are covering Lock and Key season two on Netflix. And then also coming up pretty much the same day, we're kind of just double releasing (laughs) <laughs> Me and Rima are so, so excited to be jumping into the Showtime original series, limited series as far as we know right now, Dexter, New Blood. It is the revival of a beloved show. I love Dexter so much. Rima is a huge Dexter fan. Me and her have been just freaking out, jumping at the bit for this to come out so we can cover it. And so I'm very excited to get to talk about Dexter Morgan once again. <laughs> it's so good. I have not listened to your first episode, but I know it's going to be great because I watched all of the seasons of Dexter and was a huge fan of the show. And I've seen episode one. I'm really interested in where they're going to take it. 
And I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say about it. It's nice mm. to have a companion podcast that you can listen to to uh, find out what other people are thinking, not just yours, yourself. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm I'm so excited to be diving into Dexter. So if you're a fan of Dexter, check out Strange Indeed. And then also Amazon Prime, the new series Wheel of Time coming up soon. Every week I do this where I'm like, I should have a date and I still just don't. Um, it's soon. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> should have a date written down. Maybe next week. Um, unless it's out next week. I don't know. It could be that soon. I but, think uh, it's anyway. around the 19th. I think if I remember okay, correctly, cool. it's around the 19th. All right. So I know they're excited to bring it to everyone. So. Mm-hmm. I've yeah. seen some previews and it looks really interesting. I never read any of the books. I don't really know anything about it. But but yeah, the the previews and trailers and stuff for it look pretty interesting. And so if you're a fan of that or want to check that out. There's some podcasts I can send you to, House Podcastica on the Podcastica Network. Our friends Ben, Wendy, and Greg will be covering it there. Or you can listen to Derek and his co-hosts over on TV Podcast Industries. Also, we'll be covering Wheel of Time there. Yes. And then, let's see, Adrenaline Cinema with our friend Mark. Him and Jerry are discussing Logan's Run this week is the episode that is up. So go check that out. You're a fan of that one. So, hey, another 70s movie. I know. I feel like there's a theme going on. You know, speaking of Jerry, he's going to be joining us here on Run for Your Lives at some point soon to talk about a movie. And it's yes. going to take me a while to prepare for the pun offs yes. that are going to take place yeah. between the two of you. Yeah. Well, Jerry coming on here, Daphne is going to have to prepare for her punishment the oh. best she can. It's it's going to be mm-hmm. it's going to be a challenge. That's for sure. We will deliver it with impunity. Don't worry about it. Oh, Um, man. It's already (laughs) starting. Yes. Uh, (laughs) On the Walking Dead cast over on Podcastica as well, Jason and Lucy are covering World Beyond and a little bit of Fear of the Walking Dead. Mm. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. But World Beyond is great. World Beyond is doing some stuff. Uh, I'm a little behind. I haven't watched, but I've heard through the grapevine, seen some stuff. It is really starting to tie into things that are going on in the main Walking Dead show right now with some really cool stuff. So definitely check that out if you are a World Beyond Walking Dead fan. Listen to Deadcast, Walking Deadcast with Jason and Lucy. They're doing great stuff over there. And then finally, our friend Ben with the Wilhelm podcast this week covering favorite Western movies. Yeah, I'm not... I am not a Western movie fan. The exception being Tombstone. I love. I was going to say Tombstone. Tombstone. <laughs> I figured you. Yeah, loved it. <laughs> that was oh so fantastic, and I love the TV series Deadwood. Like those mm. are two exceptions to the rule, but I'm not. Yeah, I'm not a big Western fan. But to yeah, Tombstone is an exception. It's just so incredible. Everything about it is incredible. So did Tombstone make the top five list of Ben or his guests this week? You'll have to tune into Wilhelm to find yes, out. Yes, you will. <laughs> I'm curious. And then, of course, talking about things that are coming up on podcast next week, right here on Run For Your Lives. What do we got coming? <laughs> <laughs> when the next great American serial killer invites a documentary crew to film his first reign of terror, the crew gets more than they bargained for in this love letter to the slasher film genre. Next, we're going to be tackling Scott Glosterman's 2006 mockumentary, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. This is one of Paik's favorites. Did I love it? Mm -hmm. Did I hate it? 
you're going to have to wait until next week to find out. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, we have come to the end of another fun-filled episode. Thanks for the feedback, everyone. Thanks for listening. I am Daphne. I am Pake. And if you have to run, you'd better run for your lives. Bye-bye.